Linda Javen is the author of 12 books, fiction, non-fiction, and memoir. She came to prominence many years ago as a novelist with such startling books as Eat Me and the Rock and Roll Babes from Outer Space. But previous to that, she'd been a foreign correspondent for Asia Week, living for many years in both Taiwan and Hong Kong, as well as in Beijing, reporting from there when the country first opened up to the West. Her non-fiction includes the memoir The Monkey and the Dragon, subtitled a, a True Story About Friendship, Music, Politics and Life on the Edge, which is a remarkable account of those years. Linda has worked as a translator of both prose and film. She did the subtitles for Farewell, My Concubine, amongst many others, and is a renowned specialist on China, so much so that she was invited by Black Ink to write this fabulous book, The Shortest History of China, which is here tonight to talk about. Please welcome Linda to Mulaney. Thank you. Now, Linda, I wanted to start by asking you a few questions about yourself. Now, I know it's not really relevant to the subject at hand, but, <laughs> but you are such an interesting person. I mean, just for a start, how did a nice Jewish girl from Connecticut end up in Taiwan speaking fluent Chinese, hanging around with a Taiwanese pop star who would later <laughs> defect to China? <laughs> well, um, yeah, um, I, <laughs> I went to Brown University in the States and I had been a real like environmental activist. I was active in, I don't know, you've probably heard of Ralph Nader. I was in when I was in high school, I was, I was in his citizen action groups and all this sort of thing. And when I went to university, I was convinced that what I was, well, first I said to the Ralph Nader people, I was like, what should I do? Should I do, um, you know, e e eco studies, like ecobiology? And they were like, no, no, that's not you. I <laughs> said, you're political science. So I was like, okay, that's what I'm gonna do. Brown University has a reputation for being very open and they encourage you to try all sorts of things. So. I was looking at my first year, what I was gonna take, and I had my political science stuff. But then I was like, okay, let me find out some interesting courses. So I signed up for physics for non-physics majors, um, Latin, um, and I was like, okay, what's another one? And I asked somebody, and I cannot remember who this was, but I asked somebody, can you recommend a course that's taught really well? Like, I don't care what the subject is, just really well. And they said, introduction to East Asian history. And that totally changed my life. I took this course just thinking, pff, like Latin, like physics, you know, um, a little bit of a whim, something to expand my mind, and I was just hooked. I thought, this is the most interesting. It was Japan and China, and I was really, really hooked, and especially on China for some reason. I was just like, this is the most interesting country in the world, and I had no idea anything about its history. And at the time, Mao was in power and China was not open. And so I continued this study, and my professor said to me, you really need to study Chinese, because I just kept taking Chinese history courses and East Asian history courses. He said, you have to take Chinese. I said, well, no, I couldn't, you know, my French in, in high school, I was terrible at French. I don't do languages, which I now hear people say to me. I'm like, no, 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 that's not true. Um, so anyway, I promised him that I would do Chinese, and every day I thank this man, Professor Lee Williams. Every day in my heart I thank you because he changed my life. He said to me, you will never understand China if you don't understand the language. You cannot understand its history. And so as I got deeper into it, but I was, it was only a four-year degree, I was just so fascinated and I thought, you know, what am I gonna do with it? Because at the time, again, 
you know, <laughs> was sort of like, okay, am I going to become a diplomat? I, I didn't want to become an academic because I'd never traveled and I really wanted to travel and, I, you know, I didn't want to sit in the university for longer. So no to academia, at least for a while. Actually, never got back to it. But um, except in a very amateur sense, like as Warren was saying, <laughs> a love of study, you know, it just sort of kept going. But the other thing was you could be a diplomat or a spy. And I thought, I'm not discreet enough to be a diplomat. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry, I thought you were going to say I'm not discreet enough to be a spy. I mean, sorry, I'm not discreet enough to be a spy, and I'm so <laughs> undiplomatic. <laughs> so I thought, that's not going to work. Why don't I just take myself off to Taiwan and just study the language more, because it's fun, and I'll figure out my life as I go. I always had in mind, though, this is really funny, I always had in mind one day, because I always wanted to be a writer, I didn't know how you became a writer, the answer is you just write. <laughs> but I had no idea. I was like, oh, one day I want to be a writer, but how do people become writers? Um, and when I'm a writer, what I'd really like to do, this is when I was like finishing university, I thought I'd really like to write a popular history of China that introduces the whole history of China to people in a way that really draws them in. That was my thing. 40, and 45 years ago. Yes! <laughs> and my wish came true. Black Ink approached me and said, will you do this? Isn't that fascinating? That's extraordinary. So how did, I mean, I, in, in the, just that little introductory question, I mentioned um, Hu De Xiang, right? Who was this pop yeah. star. How, how, did, how did you meet him? How did I meet Hu De Jian? So I was living in, I lived in Taiwan for two years. I was very familiar with the culture. In, yeah, in Taipei. In Taipei. I, used, I had a Taiwanese boyfriend at the time who was a soldier. He was doing his service. We had to meet secretly because he wasn't allowed to, you know, hang out, much less do anything else with foreigners. But we traveled all over the island. We used to hike everywhere. And I really loved it. And then I moved to Taiwan. I, and, and I also lived with a little band that did covers. They, so I was kind of in the music scene. I, I was always, you know, I would lug their instruments with them, and it was quite fun. Then I moved to, to Hong Kong, and in Hong Kong, um, I was also, you know, I became a journalist, etc. Anyway, one I knew about Ho De Jian because his song, "Heirs of the Dragon," was the song of China in its time. It just he didn't. He had sung it, but he sold the rights to it for a hundred, something like 150 US dollars. And it, a guy recorded it, and it sold like hundreds of millions, you know, and he never had the copyright. Um, but he was very famous for having written it. It was like a, an anthem. It was written from a, the standpoint of a Taiwan person whose family came from the mainland, who had never been to the mainland, who probably could never get there because it was a complete block on contact between the two places. And he wrote this song about this kind of yearning, this sort of feeling about this, this place with its rivers and, 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 and everything else. And, and, and he would, it's his homeland, but it's not his homeland. And for some reason that took off in China as well, and in Hong Kong. So anyway, I was fascinated can, by... Can, can I interrupt yeah. you just there? Because there's a curious thing about this song, because you put the lyrics of the song yeah. in, in The Monkey and the Dragon, not, not yes. this one here. Um, and the, the song is all... The far off east. The far off east. Yes. But China is actually to the west of Taiwan. I know. And it's, he talked about this later. I've talked to him a lot about this. He, he actually said, I absorbed this kind of narrative of the far off east. I'm living in Taiwan. 
China's to the west, and I, talk, I think about it as the far-off east. I know, it's really weird, right? And he thought it was really weird, too, but he kind of wrote the song in about half an hour. Poof! It just came, it came out on the day the US announced it was breaking relations with Taiwan to form them with the mainland. And so anyway, there I am in Hong Kong, and I hear that Hoda Jen is going to be giving a concert at the art center. So, oh, I want to get a ticket, but the tickets were sold out. Okay, so then he was giving a talk before the concert, and I thought, well, at least I can go to the talk. So I went to the talk, and everybody <laughs> who went was Cantonese, because there were almost nobody spoke Mandarin at the time in Hong Kong. Um, and I was, you know, learning Cantonese, but not great at it, but I could... Anyway, there he is, and he spoke Chinese. His personality reminded me of all the people who were my best friends in Taiwan. There's something about him, and I kept thinking, and I'm listening to him, he would make jokes. I would be the only person laughing in the audience because the Cantonese didn't get it, right? And, and so I'd be like, ha ha, and you could see him kind of looking up, you know, like, what? Because I was also the only foreigner in the audience, yeah. the only non-Chinese. And so it was quite funny. Anyway, he sort of, um, afterwards, I, and I kept thinking, oh, I could be best friends with this guy, you know, but... Then you think, oh my God, he's a celebrity. It's like thinking I could be best friends with John Lennon. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, this is, it's not going to happen. And so I kind of, afterwards, everybody was crowding around for an autograph and I went halfway down and then I went, don't be an idiot, Linda. You know, and I just started to turn around and he said in Chinese, wait, and I was like, oh, me? And he's like, yes, you. And um, so I was like, okay. And then I waited, and then he said, he was dealing with these other people, but then he kind of, um, he looked over, and he said, uh, and this is a Chinese thing. I don't know if anybody here speaks Chinese. Raise your hand if you do. Oh, wonderful. So he said to me, Guixin, right? And that's the way you ask people's name, and it means honorable surname. What is your honorable surname? Now, the normal answer is my surname is blah. My surname in Chinese is Jia. So the normal answer would be Xing Jia. <laughs> and instead, I just had an instinct because of his sense of humor. I went, <laughs> I did this kind of honor, this really like old fashioned thing. And I went, Bi Xing Jia, which is like my humble surname is Jia. And he burst out laughing and he said, don't go anywhere. Anyway, we sat for hours in the stairwell. He said, where do you live? He said, are you coming tonight? I said, couldn't get a ticket. He said, I don't know people in Hong Kong or I would get you a ticket. He said, where? I said, I live in Palma Day in, in Happy Valley. He said, I'm staying in this hotel. It's really boring. Can I move into your place tomorrow? Monkey and the Dragon, which is now only available in ebook, sadly, um, but it is available, um, tells the story of that friendship. Uh, and it was an extraordinary friendship because he was at the centre of a whole kind of community Tiananmen of Square, artists and everything. writers and yeah. painters and oh, everything like that. Lots of things, yeah. But he also, um, uh, the, the extraordinary thing about his career was that he defected to the mainland China. Exactly. He did that in 1983 and... He was in Hong Kong. Normally what we would do is if I went to Taiwan from Hong Kong, he would pick me up at the airport. He was a superstar. He would pick me up at the airport. It didn't matter. Um, he would drive me to the airport at the end of my visit. I stayed with him. Or if I was in a hotel, and we were just friends. Like, this is so funny. People are like, yeah, nah. Um, true. I, if I was staying in a hotel, he'd come and he'd sleep in the bed with me. 
But we were just mates, you know? It was this funny relationship. Anyway, he came to Hong Kong, and I would always meet his plane in Hong Kong. And so he was coming to Hong Kong, I met his plane, and always, whatever we were doing, we did together. We had this crazy friendship. So in Taiwan, when I was interviewing high officials, he'd say, can I come along? And he'd be sitting there, like I'd be talking to some you know, minister of something or other. It was, it was so strange and so funny and quite precious. And then when he came to Hong Kong, which he was doing you know, a lot as time went on, he would have, so his record company and da da da, all these people would be meeting with him. He took me everywhere. I knew his whole record company, I knew everybody. This time he was like, oh, I'm uh, seeing Akim from the record company, so maybe I'll meet you afterwards. And I was like, why can't I come and see Akim? He's like, oh, we've just got a lot to talk about. And he just did this to me the whole time. And I was like, what is going on? Something's going on. And he was like, nothing's going on. And then he said, I'm going to Japan. I will see you in a week. I was like, I there's something really weird happening. And I said, I'm going to see you off at the airport. He goes, no, 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 don't come. Akim's taking me to the airport. He was meanwhile telling Akim that I was taking him. And Every time he was supposed to be with Akim, he told Akim that he was with me. What it was, was he was arranging his defection to China. <laughs> uh, I mean, and then I got blamed by Taiwan and banned. So, I mean, it's not... It, you might just need to kind of elucidate a little bit there because it wasn't normal for people to defect to China. No, no, people, no, they people, went the other people way. People defected from China. Exactly. They didn't defect to China. Very rarely, exactly. Uh, one pilot with a gambling problem took his you know, fighter over there, but basically it didn't happen. And all communication was blocked. Um, so for many years I was running letters and stuff back to his family and, and, and all of that. And um, yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> um, so look, we, we should probably kind of move on it into the history, but, but it, I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating story. And I, <laughs> I, I highly recommend The Monkey and the Dragon. You can, get it on, you can get it on Kindle or something like that if you want. It's a very interesting book. Uh, I mean, I, I've got one note here that I just realised also that, that, that I, just before we move on to the history, was that you also met your husband, um, Jeremy. My um, ex-husband. Jer Jeremy, yeah. Your ex-husband, Jeremy Barme during this period in, in Beijing as well. He was, was he working at the Department of... No, no, he was a scholar from the ANU, and I, was, I met him twice. The first time he doesn't remember at all. Um, the first time was at a Peking opera, and we had a mutual Chinese friend, Winnie Yang, uh, who is a journalist, a senior journalist, and she said, you have to come to this Peking opera, it's magnificent, and he was there as well. She introduced us, we only spoke Chinese. He spoke to me in Chinese that completely made me go, oh my God, it's so good. Like I thought, oh, I'm just, like he, it curled my toes. It was so good. I didn't even dare, like I barely dared speak back to him. And of course he's an Australian, you know? So <laughs> it's kind of funny, you know, we're, we're, I was like speaking in Chinese, but feeling really like, the second time I met him, I was interviewing again in Hong Kong, I was interviewing a filmmaker who was the daughter of a Politburo member. And she was really careful, like she was not meeting foreign journalists. Winnie Young convinced her to meet me and made me promise I wouldn't ask her any tricky questions, I'd just talk to her about her movie. <laughs> and so I said yes. She meanwhile had met Jeremy in Beijing. She, and he was in Hong Kong, and she said, can you come along and protect me from this journalist, right? So I go, 
I go to this hilarious, it was so funny, it was in her hotel room, and she's this tiny little bird of a person, like she's really skinny and really little. And she's sitting there like this. And we would joke about this later because I would, you know, I've, I think the last time I saw her was about 2012 or something. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've kept in touch. But she was this tiny little thing and she was looking at me like this, completely unsmiling. And Jeremy was sitting there like this next to her. And I felt all of my Chinese draining out. I felt like everything I said was a stutter. Um, I was so intimidated. And I had this, I mean, I asked her all these questions. Jeremy very kindly says that my Chinese was fine, um, but it wasn't. And then afterwards, mission complete, we went out with, the three of us then met Winnie Young at a coffee shop. And instantly, everybody relaxes, it's super fun, and Jeremy starts talking to me in English. <laughs> I mean, that was the question I had about him, was that he hmm. went to study in China in about 1975 or something yes, like that. Yes, he I went mean, during I, the cult. How did any Westerners get to study in China in 1975? That's really, really early. It's really early. He was among the first Australians after, the, after diplomacy. And yeah, it was, it was a whole thing. It was a Mao thing. I've got a whole chapter on the Mao thing. <laughs> so, okay, let's move into the history. I just was curious about, about that aspect of, yeah. his, of, of your life. So in the introduction, you commence with Confucius talking about the importance of correct names, which leads into a discussion about how China actually came to be called China, which seems to date back to some Spaniard in the 1500s. How do the Chinese feel about that? I don't think they cared one way or the other. I don't think they knew. I mean, basically, China was in Chinese. It was Zhongguo or Zhonghua, um, but it wasn't the Qin. The, the, what happened was the Spanish person wrote, uh, referred to China as China, Qinna, which uh, refers to the Qin dynasty, which was founded in 221 BCE. Um, Cathay was another way that it was referred to in the West. Um, and that was came from the Kitan, which were a minority nomadic group in the in the north, um, who kind of controlled the for a long time the Silk Road trade. And so Westerners had this idea of Kitan Kitai. Uh, in Russian, apparently, the word for China still is something like Kitai or something like that. Um, and then there was this idea of it being Qin China. Um, but in Chinese, it's always been Zhongguo or Zhonghua. But I'm going to, before I explain the difference between those, because it's really important and it's crucial to actually the way I wrote the book. But just a little interruption on that, and I say this in here as well. Throughout Chinese history, during the dynastic periods, if you said to somebody, where are you from? What, you know, they would say, I'm, I'm a man of the Tang. You know, I'm a person of the Song. They didn't identify as Chinese. They identified as a person of their dynasty. Okay, so then there's this concept, Zhongguo, Zhonghua. And what I wanted to do is most short histories of China, most general histories of China, are about Zhongguo. I wanted it to be about Zhongguo and Zhonghua, which I probably should explain. <laughs> go, right, go right ahead. So Zhongguo is often kind of loosely mistranslated as the Middle Kingdom. Okay, So it, it's literally center, and then there's this 
character that's, that uh, indicates country. But that character used to indicate a fortified city. And the idea was it's the center of the city, the fortified city, or the center of the country, rather than the middle of the world, the country yeah. at the middle of the world. It was a different concept. But Zhongguo, Guo, that character, <laughs> this is a Chinese habit. You just write characters in the air all the time. Like somebody says, what's your name? Oh, are you that Chun or that Chun? You know, this Zhang or that Zhang? And you go, I'm this Zhang. <laughs> and everybody can read that backwards. You know, it's really funny. So Zhongguo, um, I feel like I should have a big chalkboard up here. Zhongguo is this, ah, wait, can I have that? Yes, certainly. Perfect. So top character, Zhong, center. This character, slightly cursively written, you've got a surrounding wall. Inside it, you've got a halberd, and you've got a mouth, which signifies population. So it's defending a place that is defined by a wall with people in it. <laughs> so Zhongguo is a kind of, um, yeah, it's a kind of a, a, the country concept. Now, it, Zhongguo can only be that place that's defined by boundaries. Zhonghua is a really interesting concept. Hua, same Zhong, Hua means splendid, glory, splendor, all this kind of thing. And so what that is, Zhonghua refers to the civilization, this thing that it can exist in Malayni. If you've got Chinese people here, they have brought a little Zhonghua with them, right? It can exist anywhere. Um, Zhonghua is beyond the politics of it, Zhonghua is the philosophy, the art, the culture, the Chineseness of things. It's a sense of civilization. And so China, as I say here, I understand it not as Zhongguo, but as Zhongguo plus Zhonghua. And I think that if you, that was my approach in writing this book, it's not like, then this emperor killed his son and the other son took over or whatever it's which happens a lot there's a lot of bloodshed <laughs> but it's really there's a lot of culture in here there's a lot of poetry there's it's all important and in fact one of the ways you start uh, what the kind of the first chapters are about the area in the Jude. Uh, era when we're talking about the rise of the three pillars of thought, which are Confucianism, Taoism, and legalism. Can you just talk about them? Because I think they're really important to any understanding of, 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 what, of where we go from there. Yeah, and, it's t and, and this is super important in terms of understanding Xi Jinping, the Shanghai lockdown, and all of this. So I'll get there in a second. But so you have, it's, it's, it's crucial to understanding everything about China. So in the, um, Chinese history kind of solidifies about 3,500 BCE when you've got the first written records. By the time we get to, um, um, now I'm just going, five, five, 500 BC. Oh, but before that we have the Zhou, and that's really important because it becomes a very crucial uh, part of why this philosophy um, developed. So the Zhou dynasty, sorry, 1050 BCE <laughs> starts. And in the beginning, it's splendid. It's amazing. Um, according to records, um, 
It was such good government that for 40 years, no one committed a crime. So good. Um, and then things went to shit, sorry. Um, <laughs> can I say shit in Mulaney? You certainly yes, can. Good, okay. So everything went to shit. Um, and it used to be this thing where vassal states would come and they'd pay obeisance to the king, you know, of Joe and all this sort of thing. They didn't have emperors then, it was king. And they would give certain favors and everybody was happy. Then things began to break down. The vassal states started to fight among themselves. They started to break away. They fought with the chit, they fought with the Joe itself. And the whole place was plunged into warfare. People were suffering. It was horrible. There was no order. Soldiers roamed around. Around 500 BCE, there was this, while everything was so terrible, a there were philosophers who began to figure out, what do we need to do to get things back in order? How do we, how do we come up with philosophies of governance and of being and of, of surviving and all this stuff? So three basic philosophies, as you just said. Um, one is Confucianism. Confucius um, was very concerned with hierarchy, everybody knowing their place, moderation, the golden mean, um, and people, scholars ought to serve a government, and a government ought to listen to scholars. Now, the idea in his, his essential idea was this. If you have a society in which everybody knows their place, and you have a prince, for example, who really is a good person, who behaves according to moral standards, um, including, for example, you've got loyalty, you've got trustworthiness, you've got, he's got the moral standards, you know, he, he lists them, a filial piety, respecting your elders and your ancestors and so on. If you've got a prince who's that good, everyone in his court, everyone in the country is going to follow that example. And a father or a husband does this for their family. So it's this whole idea of this trickle-down effect of goodness. And it's very idealistic. Legalism, which was the kind of like, you're stupid Confucius part of this. Um, legalism, Han Feidze, the philosopher, who was a little bit later from Confucius, a couple hundred years, he was, he said, People are not good. Confucius is, you know, essentially, people are good. No, they're not good. You have to tell them what to do, and you have to punish them. And there's no such thing, if they don't do the right thing, there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's only what the ruler wants you to do and what they don't want you to do. So if you're ruling a country, don't try to be a good person. <laughs> this is Han Feidze talking through me. Um, don't try to be a good person. Uh, just put really strict systems of rewards and punishments in law. And people will obey, the, they will, it'll work. This is, now, there's a person, um, uh, a friend of mine actually, a Chinese writer called Jia Zhenying, she has said that, you know, Confucianism is the cloak of every dynasty and every ruler since, pretty much. And Han Feidze is the black heart. And that's how it really is run, you know? So you have, like, Confucius Institutes and Xi Jinping, you know, quoting Confucius and all this stuff. And then you have <laughs> surveillance and you have punishment and you have apps that tell you whether, you know... So this is, this is now the third philosophy, which is my favorite, Taoism arises around the same time, and they're like, Ugh, forget that, I just want to fish, <laughs> write poetry, drink. Um, life, there's no 
there's no greater meaning, that, but we, 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 we try to do good. We come from nature, we go back to nature. Taoism became a religion obsessed with alchemy and, and long life potions and all this sort of thing, but that's kind of another story. But the Taoists, the Confucianism, the Confucianists were always like, Taoists, you're so smart. Can't you, can't you join government and help us, you know, help rule? And they're like, <laughs> um, so there's lots of Taoist jokes about Confucians begging them to help and them being much smarter. But that, those three things take us, really are essential to looking at various Chinese ways of being. So you've got, you've got models for how you should act and that you can see like, oh, here's the good doctor and the people in the hospital who are helping the COVID people. Then you've got Han Feidze. And it's like, if you walk out of that apartment building and you're not supposed to, we're going to drag you off. And then you've got the Taoists who are sitting there playing with memes. <laughs> but the interesting thing about these three pillars of thought that kind of run through for the last two and a half thousand yeah. years of China is that God doesn't seem to take much of a role. No, no, there's no God. Um, Chinese philosophy doesn't have a monolithic God. There's lots of gods. So you've got a God in your kitchen, and you, you, you definitely give him some nice offerings um, at New Year um, so that they'll, you know bless the household and all that. There's lots of gods. There's the earth god, there's all these things. But there's no, you know, god of Christians and Jews and, and Muslims. There's, there's no rewarding of good behavior or bad behavior in some other place. Yeah, that this doesn't happen. Buddhism came in during the Han Dynasty, which is approximately the same time as the Roman Empire. If you remember that, you kind of situate it in time. About 200 BCE to 200 um, um, common era, yeah, yes. um, and so the Han Dynasty Buddhists because they opened the Silk Roads. That's when trade began to happen, and so people brought in from India this idea of Buddhism. But it really took off in the Tang Dynasty in the seventh century, eighth century, and so on, um, and became very strong. But even Buddhism is not that kind of god. It's no, a different thing, yeah. 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 So um, what we, uh, I've got this kind of quite long question here at the moment, which is, is that after you know, this period, then we kind of enter into this incredible cycle of empire that governs China for good or ill for about 2,000, 2,500 years. And each one is made up of all these different dynasties. And reading the history, two essential aspects come to the fore. The first is how hopeless the model is, because it just repeats itself over and over again, a period of renewal faced by a slow decline leading to the loss of the mandate of heaven, and then the rise of a new leader who time after time destroys everything. I mean, they don't just, they, they don't, they don't just kind of depose the leader. They kill everybody to the 10th generation connected to him and burn, all, of, the, yeah. bur, burn all the books and everything like that. And then we start again, and it, it just... It, doesn't seem to work very well. I mean, I'm not saying that the Chinese have any kind of uh, uh, you know, hold on this. It's, it's world history generally, but it seems to be writ particularly large in China. This, this. Yes, yes and no. Um, I mean, the thing about the dynasties, definitely what you're saying, is the dynasty starts off vigorous. I would say this. They start off really vigorously because they're, they're led. The first emperor is always some rebel who's overthrown the previous dynasty, and they're full of ideas and all this stuff. And yeah, the Ming, the Ming founder, I think you were thinking of, he like chops people in half and he kills off like 10, you know, like so many people who were associated with the previous dynasty. 
Um, but not everybody does that. Some people retain um, some of the better people from the previous. The, most, the biggest cycle, though, you're absolutely right, is that they start off vigorous and then it begins to decay. Corruption, nepotism, really important. Inability to come up with a good succession system. Yeah. And that just ends up, as I say, you've got fratricide, you've got, you've, got, you've got people killing their brothers, their sons, their fathers, their uncles. You know, it's, it's nuts. And it's because there's no clear uh, way of, you know, you, yes, you give it probably to your firstborn, but not always, you know, and the, the, the person, the, the emperor might not designate somebody before he dies accidentally, or he might designate somebody at the last minute on his deathbed, and the person who thought he was going to get the job gets really pissed off and goes, burns down the other person's palace. You know, that sort of thing happens. But yeah, it's, um, and these are the problems. When the dynasty becomes so corrupt, the people are suffering. Their infrastructure has gone to, you know, has just gone to shit. It's the dams, you know, are not, nothing's working. People can't irrigate their fields. They can't, they, they, you know, they, can't, they, get, they get floods coming. They get all this stuff and they, they, the roads are terrible. And so they begin again to rebel. And then the whole cycle starts again. That's absolutely true. Um, but there was a kind of a building up of systems constant tweaking of what does it mean to have a Confucian system, etc., etc. But yeah, that's the thing that, again, we see in history, the key to today. As I write in here, if you know about all this, you understand why Xi Jinping and the whole idea of him taking more than two terms and why that rule came in to begin with, you just go, oh my God, it's succession drama all over again. Yeah. Now, I want, I want to leave Xi Jinping for a little while. Okay. If that's all right. Cause, cause yeah. I, I, we're still, go back. We're still, we're still back in the dynastic era. Perfect. Well, oh, well, probably still in the dynastic era, but, but let, let, <laughs> let's just, just stay there for a little while longer. Uh, I mean, and I think you kind of touched on the second point that I got there, which was that that the Chinese people themselves are incredibly long-suffering throughout all of this. It's like there is this kind of great mass of people, and it is an enormous mass of people. That's the other thing is I, don't, I didn't quite realize the population of China was so large for so long, where it was you know, back in the Middle Ages, it was 150 million people or something like that living in China. This, it, was, it was huge numbers of people, all of whom were kind of subjected to this they didn't have any control over these rulers. These rulers were just fighting amongst themselves, and they yeah. were just the, the recipients of it. And I, I had a, a great sense that kind of came through reading the whole book was of just them. I think there's a, a feeling of the Chinese amongst Australians that, that the Chinese are the other. They're, 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 they're kind of different people from us. But I got the sense reading uh, this history and this turmoil that they're really very much their concerns are very much the same concerns as the rest of the humanity. Of course. Survival, prosperity, health, you know, um, and good governance. And, and there's, there's and exactly that thing. You're just yeah. crying out for good governance. You're trying out, crying out for people to just get their shit together, please. And, and you look after the way that the, the rivers are, 
are damned or whatever it is, and we will look after our lives. Yeah. And, and eventually, of course, you end up, you go through the Tong and the Sung and the Duan and the Ming and the Qing, and that goes, and particularly for the last, I think it's 1,400 years, there's only really five kind of periods of, of dynasties. And then we end up with the last 300 years leading up to 1900 or thereabouts with the Qing. And it really, they just lost the plot completely and left themselves, the world, the rest of the world was starting to develop very sophisticated um, mercantile models and industrial development. And the Qing were just kind of, the, the kingdom was, was less. So you end up with this century of humiliation that they speak of. So yes, the, the Qing started off, it, the Qing was a what they call foreign dynasty. China's had, a, had some of those. Um, and that means that it was run by, um, it was the Manchus from above the Great Wall, uh, a semi-nomadic, semi-agrarian -agra um, uh, tribe who had actually been around and tormenting <laughs> various dynasties for a long time. And then they changed their name from Jurchen to Manchu. Um, and they took advantage of chaos at the end of the Ming Dynasty to just come streaming through the Great Wall and set up their dynasty. Now, the beginning dynamic of the Qing was one of murdering all Han who objected and making all Han... How many people um, are familiar with the, the kind of caricature of a Chinese person with a pigtail? Yeah? Do you, how many people know where that's from? Okay, this is, yeah, this is really interesting. It's because the Manchus, who were, uh, as I said, a semi-nomadic people, a lot of their clothes and their style had to do with horses and things. And they themselves, the men shaved the first part of their head, and then they grew the hair long and gathered it and plaited it um, into, you know, a kind of a long tail. And they said, when they came in, they said, every Chinese male, um, every single person here has to do that to their hair, or it's either the hair or your head. And they were very serious because they wanted that as a sign of submission, right? So the Chinese had to do this. Um, it was, people were so upset because Chinese men loved their hair. Um, and they, they would put them in buns and they would, you know, wear it in different ways. And this was suddenly this horrible, for them, bar barbarian kind of hairstyle. But then what happened was the Qing was also, the rulers were also very clever. They really adapted to Chinese ways. They respected Confucius. They knew how things worked. The Mongols <laughs> tried it, but they didn't, they were a bit rougher. Um, the Qing were really good, <coughs> excuse me, at at being good Chinese rulers. So in the beginning, the first Qing rulers, the first Qing emperors were brilliant. They were among the most revered emperors in Chinese history. They were diligent. Um, Qianlong, uh, there was Kangxi, was amazing, diligent, etc. His, his uh, grandson Qianlong conquered Xinjiang and Tibet and made China the size it is today. When you read about the, the Chinese will say, oh, the Qin dynasty in 221 BC unified China. Well, it unified this much of China. You know, no Xinjiang, no Tibet, no Southwest, no Southeast, no Northeast. Qianlong made it the thing that we think of as China today, this big thing. But that came with a whole lot of problems, like rebellions, 
like unhappy Uyghurs, rebellions, unhappy Tibetans, etc. Um, you also, it was just a bit of overreach. But it was a splendid age. It's, it's the last great golden age, as they say, a shengshi um, in Chinese, um, of China. But then decay began to set in. And as that decay, Qianlong actually met a representative of, um, of uh, Queen Victoria. And this was Lord McCartney. And I used to be in China with his great, 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 great granddaughter, anyway, who was a Reuters correspondent. I can't remember how many greats are in there, so don't count. Um, but Lord McCartney was basically saying, we want these trade conditions, we want this, we want that, because we're buying your tea, we're buying your silk, we're buying your porcelain, and you don't buy anything from us. And so our silver is flowing that way. You know, can we just talk about this? <laughs> and Qianlong's like, nah, we don't need anything. And, but at the same time, more unscrupulous English traders figured out what they could sell into China and get silver for, and that was opium. And so they began doing this, and this created, they got the opium from India, and this created this huge social problem. The emperors didn't know what to do, and when they tried to assert themselves, the British and the French hammered them with, you know, with uh, their naval ships and their cannons and everything else using gunpowder invented by the Chinese. But um, the, this just took China by such surprise. Nothing like this had ever happened. N you know, no one had ever come in and said, you have to have me. Yeah. You know, you have to have what I want to do. And so everything began to fall apart. The, the emperor who um, presided over the, the treaty, that, the, the unequal treaty, as they call it, um, that ended the Second Opium War, died really young, and presumably, like they say, of shame, you know. Um, and his widow began to be like the most po powerful person in China for uh, quite a long time after that. And there was a lot of issues, like China was not supposed to be run by a woman. <laughs> she wasn't officially the emperor, she was the regent. Things just went wrong in so many ways. And meanwhile, Western imperialist forces and Japanese, Japanese suddenly had modernized with the Meiji Restoration, and they're attacking China. They had a little war, they took Taiwan, they took Northeast, you know. This stuff was going on and just, China did not have the resources. It did not have the modern learning. It did not have the flexibility or agility to reform itself. Except I have to make a little like, but, but. The but is that um, the, um, the emperor who <laughs> was, a, first the Empress Dowager was the regent for her own son, her son, died, then she got her nephew on the throne, and she basically kept him there as long as she could with her ruling. But when he finally came to his majority, he was listening to the people who were saying, we have to reform, we have to modernize education, we have to modernize the way we do things, we have to start with industry, we have to, because England was in the, you know, industrial revolution had happened, and we have to do all this stuff, we have to liberate our women, you know, we have to, we have to do lots and lots of things. And 
And anyway, it all turned into a bit of a schlamazel. She had him put under palace arrest, had the reformers executed, and kind of cut off China's ability to reform itself. Um, and yeah, and then native revolution, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the last dynasty. And, and Eventually, and I'm kind of looking at the time here, and I want to kind of move on to. Oh, to sorry, say, I'm, no, I give no, long no, answers. I'm, I'm, yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about we, we're kind of skipping across hundreds mm. of years here, but suddenly we're at we're in the in the in the 20th century, and there's the formation of the republic and the Sun Yat-sen, and there's the Guomintang and the battle between, and out of all of this rises the Chinese Communist Party and Mao, and and the Long March, and then eventually. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about, about Mao and the Long March and what he did and how yep. the communists came to power. So when the, the Republic was kind of corrupt and, and impotent from the beginning, warlords, various feudal kind of men with armies and territories began fighting. The nascent Republic was very troubled. Um, a man called Chiang Kai-shek uh, became um, president. Um, I'm really collapsing history here, but you can read it in more detail. Chiang Kai-shek was, was cruel, tyrannical, corrupt, and very much for the rich people, very much for, you know, he was in the pocket of the bankers and so on, and the poor people were suffering hugely. There was just so much unhappiness, there was so much inequity, um, and the, 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 the imperialist countries still had their places in Shanghai, and there was, you know, and, uh, maybe workers would go on strike and they would shoot them. You know, yeah. so the communists, again, I'm really collapsing the history here, which it, it, I'm not, it, it's, it's, it's more laid out in a story here. But the communists arose um, shortly after the Soviet, uh, the Soviet revolution. They formed officially as a party in 1921. And they still cast about, like, what are we going to do? Are we going to have a Soviet-style revolution based on urban, um, urban, you know, an urban proletarian revolution? Or Mao had this vision. He said, "We are not an urban country. We are a country of peasants. We need to have a revolution based on the peasants." But the Soviet advisors to the early Communist Party were like, "No, no, no. We've got a way of doing things, and you should do it this way." Um, meanwhile, the communists and the and Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang. Kuomintang is uh, attacking the communists. The communists, the communists are surrounded. They break out. This is the Long March in a crucial place called Zunyi in the middle of the Long March. There's a leadership struggle, and it's really about line. It's about do we go with the Soviets or do we do it the other way? Mao came out the ultimate leader. He his line, which was we base our revolution in the countryside, um, was the thing that won. They, da 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 da, Japanese invasion, fight, nah, nah, <laughs> civil war, nah, nah. and then 1949, we get the communist revolution, and Mao is the indisputed leader. Still don't have a succession plan. But, I mean, by the way. And, and, and this is really kind of one of the historical anomalies about it, because the Communist Party that had formed, I mean, we shouldn't dismiss 
what Mao's achievement there no, in defeating huge. Kuomintang. And because and, the long yeah. march, they traveled all through the countryside. They refused to um, steal anything. And no, yeah. they, they, none, none of their soldiers were allowed to take anything without paying for it. It was all, yeah. they, they were recruiting, as it were, the whole nation to the idea of communism exactly. as they traveled for, yes. for this terrible privations that they went through to end up in the mountains up near Yunnan and all that kind of stuff. What I find curious is that the people who were at the kind of center of that, of, of that thought uh, at Mao, but all his advisors, people like Deng Xiaoping and, and all these other people who were around, they were thinking about creating a new society. Yes. But they didn't um, look, for instance, to the, um, the, the, the uh, Americans, to Tom Paine or to the French Revolution or to any of these people where they kind of set up because the, the marvelous thing about the Americans, whatever you think about the present situation in the United States, is that they have this, this triple um, kind of government where you have the president and the Senate and the Congress and the separate legislation and the separate church so that everyone is kind of keeping each other in balance. They didn't accept any of those ideas. They must have been exposed to them. Some of them studied in Paris. They, they must, they must, these ideas must have been present. Oh, they, I mean, there were a lot of people who had studied in, pa in Paris, in Japan. They knew about these ideas. The Japanese had translated nearly all the Enlightenment philosophers, and many Chinese got access to that through Japanese translations because um, the Japanese were using a lot of Chinese characters, and it was a more accessible way to... So those those... All those philosophies were known, but by the time you get the Communist Party forming, you know, China was already falling apart. It was so tragic. People are suffering so badly that the communists were like, no, we're not interested in incremental this and that. We're, we're not, we're not going to go, oh, let's have people discuss and debate. We have to lead this country. We have to change things. And it has to be a revolution. And we're going to change it for the better because you can't leave it up to a whole bunch of random people because that's not how it's going to work in China. So they were committed to an absolute revolutionary path. As I say, they, didn't, they had to figure out which way the path was going to go. And they had to figure that out a number of different times all the way up to the present. You know, What does it mean? to be in this revolutionary place. I mean, the, the, where we are today is different from, say, Deng Xiaoping's uh, ref early reform era, which is different from Mao's era. There's always this thing of what line do we take? What's the correct? Yeah. Where do we go? You know? But it was never, it could never be incremental. It could never be, as Mao said himself, he said, a revolution is not a dinner party. It is not something so polite. You know, it is, it is, it is, it is an, it is, you know, you t it's the taking over of one, taking over by, yeah. of overthrowing of one class by another. Yeah. And power comes out of the barrel of a gun and the party controls the gun. Yeah. So... Yeah. Which, which, which ends up then with the, the terrible famines of, you know, 58 through to, to, to 68 or something. Yeah. And then you've got the followed by the Cultural Revolution. And then Deng Xiaoping, Mao dies and you have Deng Xiaoping and you have the kind of the, the opening up and the, yeah. the, the China that we get today. And so this is where we come now to kind of Xi Jinping. Yeah. Which, please... 
give us, <laughs> give, t tell us a little about a little bit about Xi Jinping. I mean, because I mean, his father was one of the people who was on the long march. Yes. And, and he and 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 then he oh. was he he was disgraced. So he was sent. The family was sent off in the to cultural... live in, in utter kind of misery in one of the a very in a poverty-stricken kind of hovel somewhere for a long time. So he's known all sorts of different levels of strata within society. And yet here we have this man who is trying to achieve some kind of absolute rule. Yeah, and he's doing a pretty good job of it actually. Um, <sighs> And, you know, achieving <laughs> absolute rule. I don't mean a good job of ruling necessarily, but he, um, <laughs> you know, in this book, by the way, goes from the mythological creation of the universe all the way to Xi Jinping and COVID. So <laughs> only a little bit ambitious. Uh, Xi Jinping, um, Xi Jinping did come from that party elite, you know, the, the, the children of the older revolutionaries. Um, and so he knew both privilege and privation when Mao turned against a whole bunch of his, ex, his former comrades, including Xi Jinping's father. Xi Jinping was then um, put into, you know, when, when, the cult, when the Cultural Revolution was done and, and Deng was rehabilitating people, Xi Jinping was allowed to go to Peking University, um, he, which is a good school. He was given... The, a, a kind of a pathway to power. Not all those pathways end up at the top, but he did things like he would be in charge of various provinces as time went on and so on. Now, he, um, he is a very canny person in terms of being able to consolidate power and get rid of his enemies. What he did, again referring to the thing that dooms dynasties, corruption, when he was elected Secretary General in 2012, um, he launched the biggest anti-corruption campaign. And he was very popular for that. And he kind of cultivated an image as, as Daddy Xi, right? Xi Dada, um, Uncle or Daddy Xi. He would show up and have a, a kind of a spontaneous breakfast in some little place, you know. It was all very stage-managed. But he put himself forward as a man of the people. He also did say, we have to get rid of the tigers and the flies. So we're not going to just focus on the flies, the little corrupt officials who are making everybody's life misery. We're going to get rid of the big ones. Of course, no one in his particular faction has ever fallen for corruption. It's always people who would potentially challenge his power. So, <laughs> so he plays this really interesting game. He managed to be quite popular in China for a very long time, and he probably still, and he still is among, you know, it's very mixed. China's 1.4 billion people. Not everybody thinks the same. But he's kind of cultivated this thing. But he's become more and more and more controlling, more and more insistent on doing things like artists and writers have to, like, you can't have this kind of, I can do a movie or write a book. As long as it doesn't touch on politics, it's fine everything is political again. Nothing is out of the parties, you know. Uh, he was the architect behind, he was very much behind the repression in Xinjiang that's going on. Um, he's, his, his stamp, his personal stamp is on everything. He was 
an inspiration for the kind of extremely aggressive wolf warrior diplomacy um, that we've seen. I explained that that comes from a movie. Um, but then when it began to go a little bit wrong for China, he made a speech saying, China needs to present a lovable, lovable face to the world, right? And then everybody pulls it back a little bit. Yeah. So he's, he's the big puppet. He also is the chairman of everything. And I liken him to several different emperors in ambition. His ambition is to be like Qianlong presiding over this great new golden age. His his uh, over-attention to his micromanaging is like um, um, the Ming founder who was like, I'm not going to have a prime minister. I'm going to have everybody reporting to me, and I'm going to keep... And of course, that just doesn't work. And we, uh, my ex-husband, Jeremy Barmay, coined the phrase chairman of everything because Xi Jinping is literally chairman of so many leading small groups, this, 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 this. He's chairman of everything. <laughs> um, and so he's a real control freak. He has changed the norms that were established in the Deng era, that there should only be two terms in office. He's changed that. He's very ambitious. He wants to see China to become the number one economy, the number one um, uh, science and technology superpower. He wants to be the person credited with all of this. I mean, it's interesting, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be talking to Kevin Rudd about his book um, that you helped edit. You get a, a, a proper <laughs> acknowledgement in the end of it. But, so, but his, the title of the book is The Avoidable War, um, The Catastrophic Consequences of Conflict. Wonderful alliteration here. The catastrophic consequences of conflict um, between the US and Xi Jinping's China. It's not between the US and China, it's between, it, it's, he, Rudd is specifically saying it's this individual. I mean, is there a way, uh, are Chinese people happy about this? Is this, is this, is, <laughs> this, is, is, this is, one... are we going to see another one of these? kind of renewal, this collapse and renewals that's going on? Is that, is that, the, is that the cycle we're part of? Uh, no idea. I mean, we've never seen such technologically enabled control and surveillance before. So rebellions are really hard to, to carry off. Um, Xi Jinping's China, but there are the, the 1.4 billion people, 1.4 billion opinions. But the important opinions are all in the Central Party Committee, the powerful people of China. Right, and we don't know. It's so tightly controlled at the moment, but there's all sorts of indications that not everybody is happy with Xi Jinping's taking so much power to himself with his abolition of the two-term limit. Because don't forget, you don't get many chances in this party, and there will be a whole lot of people who are thinking, my turn, my turn, you know, and no. Nah, it's not your turn. It's Xi Jinping's turn, possibly forever. <laughs> um, so there's and, a lot, and, and also men's turn as well too. There's no women there at yeah. all, really. Anywhere, uh, the, anywhere in the in, in the in the party, is there? The, no, there's women in the party. Don't mean in the high echelons. In the high echelons, there are very few. Um, they're what you call, what I would call a huaping, which is a flower vase, which is always it's like the bit of decoration, you know. Yeah. Um, they don't actually hold much power. Xi Jinping's enemies, this is why you see these like suddenly a general or the head of the discipline department or something, boom, accused of incredible corruption. 
And that just happened. They've just discovered this. You know, the reason is is because that person is aligning themselves against she, and everyone is corrupt. So you can find, you can hang that on anyone. You know, because they're going to be having. There's definitely every single one of them has at least one relative who's trading on their name. Yeah. That's putting it really mildly. Now listen, I'm looking at the time. We really should go over some questions from the audience because I'm sure people have got lots yes. of things they'd like to ask you. Um, we have a roving mic going around. Can I have a hand from anyone who would like to ask a question? Yes, over here. Can I see anyone else? Another question somewhere else where we can direct? Yes, in the back there. I just, I'm, this is the most wonderful conversation we're having with you. I'm just thinking about how we are related to China. In fact, that we produce, well, they use so much of our gas, particularly here in Queensland. Um, that's one thing that happened. And the second thing is the huge amounts of wheat that we send off. I sometimes think we are here to feed China. Am I on the wrong track there or not? <laughs> we do send huge amounts of not just uh, and other comestibles as well. Iron ore, wheat. Iron ore, yes, yes. yes. Um, I, I don't think that we... Look, this is not my area of specialty, like exactly what Australia's... Um, you know, what's how much wheat we're sending and does that impact on our own food security? I suspect that it's not impacting on our food security or we wouldn't do it. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know. It's, it's a really, really good question and I wish I could answer it. I think that there's certainly, in terms of the government, um, the government is constantly refusing foreign investment um, bids from China. And not always fairly, in my opinion, like sometimes it just seems to be part of an anti-China hysteria, but it does seem that there are systems in place to monitor what we're doing in that regard. And, you know, I think there's a whole false um, discussion that's going on with the government trying to make out, you know, that we need fossil fuels um, when personally, <laughs> and I don't think it's just personal, I mean, we could do a lot better and we could really exploit our renewables, um, in which case we don't have to worry about how much gas we send off, except in the big sense that it contributes to climate change. Really good question. That's my way of saying, great question. You've totally stumped me. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. I, I think there was a kind of subtext to, to the, the first question, which it was, is that are we really a vassal state to China? Oh, no, is I don't think we're that, a vassal that, state. So what do you no. Oh, well, okay, Chinese food security is a huge concern for China. Absolutely huge, which is why they're trying to buy up farms, not just in Australia, but in other places as well, which is why they're riding a very thin line with Russia and the Ukraine. Um, you know, there's so many aspects of that. China has a huge population and its arable land has just gone down and down and down and down. Um, it is a massive concern of the Chinese government and population. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the three philosophers um, in the BC period of China that still 
retain some influence. <coughs> Sorry? Um, a friend of mine, Tong Fisher, a Chinese scholar also <coughs> in Melbourne, introduced me to a, a philosopher called Mozi or Motsu. Mozi, <coughs> yes. Who, yes. Um, who, who advocated a kind of a cosmopolitan universal love type philosophy. I love Mozi. <coughs> Um, Mozart is, yeah, he's the kind of hippie. Um, <laughs> he's the one who was like, can't we all just love each other? Um, and I'm just going here. Mozart, another important philosopher, lived around the same time as Mencius. Mozart dis detested displays of wealth and elaborate rituals, which is what Confucians were into, advocating for an egalitarian, pacifist society animated by universal love. Few rulers ever embraced his ideas, though many people have speculated on how differently things might have turned out had they done so. <laughs> to what extent is, is his philosophy at all influencing some of the Chinese today? Uh, there might be some, like, mods of people, but in terms of power throughout Chinese history, no one has said, oh, I'm going to be a Mozaist. I'm not going to be a Confucianist. No, it doesn't happen, never happened. Very sad. But a great question. You brought up, like, besides the Taoist, my favorite philosopher. Um, I was wondering about the century of humiliation that you mentioned in passing. I understand where they get that from. My question is, amongst the general people, is that felt as a true um, emotional burden that they are still carrying? And is there anything the rest of the world can do about that? That's a really great question too. So the century of humiliation starts with the, um, with the opium wars and it goes all the way to 1949. That's the definition of it. So um, when the communist revolution succeeds. Now the century of humiliation, there was unequal treaty after unequal treaty after unequal treaty forced upon the Chinese. China was carved up, Taiwan went, Hong Kong went, Macau went, um, Shanghai was divided into places where foreigners could have their own laws. If a foreigner, if, if a non-Chinese person killed, murdered a Chinese person, they weren't subjected to Chinese law. You know, there was so much genuine injustice and humiliation, plus the exploitation of the Chinese economy, of Chinese riches, of, you know, it was, it really was a century of humiliation. It did lead to incredible suffering on the part of the people. Now, this is something which um, became, it's always been in the Chinese consciousness, but 1989, after the student-led um, uh, protest for democracy, and after they were crushed, the Communist Party went, whoa, we've got to do something about the young people. What we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to have this huge program of patriotic education. That's what they call aiguozhuyijiaoyu. Um, and so this program of patriotic education, the centerpiece of it is telling people about the century of humiliation. Not just telling them, there are films, there are TV shows, there are novels, there are books. This narrative which is this is the this is the interesting thing the narrative is true and it's genuine and it's legitimate at the same time it's so pushed at like young people grow up with that as a central narrative as a really important part of their consciousness so they 
they feel that humiliation, that shame, and that grievance against the West. Um, it's a, my experience of it is it's a genuinely felt thing. Um, whether, you know, the fact is it's been kind of um, formulated and um, pushed by the party, but it's, because it's not false, it has a lot of uh, power to it. Does that answer your question? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Because the, the, the West, you know, so many, you know, when China became, um, you know, communist, uh, it, there was the Cold War, there was punishments, there was all this stuff, there was the Korean War. So China's always felt beleaguered and besieged. And, and so it's just, yeah, you can't, if you say sorry now, like, what have you been doing the last, you know, um, 70 years or something? I mean, it's a really complicated problem. But yeah, it might help by starting to say sorry. <laughs> Oh, we've got time for just two more questions. This gentleman here mm -hmm. and then this lady in the front here. I'm sorry, that, that, that'll take us past time. I'll try right. to do really fast and we might um, get three. There was recently an article in the ABC uh, by Anne Verinder about the state of the Chinese economy going forward from what has been a fantastic um, period of growth and uh, development in which uh, he was commenting on the likelihood that in actual fact, in spite of the view that China will become the largest economy in the world in perhaps the next decade, that that will very likely not happen due to uh, population issues and yeah. with regard to the changes that have been taking place in the Chinese economy and Xi Jinping uh, and control by the central uh, government. Do you, what view do you have about that? I have the view that um, China's economy could very well be in very big trouble, but I also believe that they've got a lot of ways of, of hope, you know, making up for that. Um, I don't know, I don't have a crystal ball, is it gonna become the biggest economy or not? But that's, demographic issues are very, very serious. China's got a rapidly aging population. It's not replacing itself. Um, this causes huge issues. Um, there are other things, I mean, COVID, et cetera. I, look what's just happening in Shanghai. That's thrown a huge spanner in the works. Now they're saying China's uh, growth at the moment, GDP growth, I think for the first quarter was 4.8. Now that's pretty good. Um, it's had like 10% growth, you know, and, and more during the 1990s and so on. Um, now they're revising down to two point this, two point that. What does that mean in fact? It, it, it depends on how the economy grows, who gets left behind, whether they can make up certain structural problems like demographics and so on. It's something that Chinese economists are working on around the clock and policymakers, and I don't know whether they're gonna succeed. I don't know, I have no idea. But it is now more in question than ever, for sure. Good question. Hi, Linda. Um, there, there seems to be an, a growing fear that China will invade us. Um, and certainly a number of people that I talk to feel that, yeah, this, this, this is something that could happen. Um, my little understanding of the Chinese people and, the, and their character it would seem to me that it's most likely that, that China will only really want to invade us economically and very unlikely militarily. 
Just wondered if you could comment on that. I am completely in agreement with you. The only thing that could change is if we get into some big war with Taiwan and we actually become in an act, if we fall into an actual war. Dutton talking about beating the drums of war, so irresponsible. You know, you don't, you don't provoke like that. It is so irresponsible. This government has made a thing of provoking China. This current government is, if we get into a war with China, it's because of the unnecessary provocations, the downgrading of diplomacy, which really they've been involved in, they've been, you know, and also the defunding of our universities so that there's fewer people learning Chinese, there's fewer courses in Chinese history and the humanities. This is so short-sighted. If we get into an actual war where we're fighting Chinese people, it is really turn around and whether they're in power or not, write a thank you note to Dutton and Morrison and all the rest of these clowns. Pardon me for being very partisan. <laughs> but, but I completely agree with you. They have no desire and there's no track record. You know, when we talk about, oh, South China Sea, they've got this kind of slightly bogus, but you know, sort of, uh, claim on South China Sea, territorial waters, fishing, etc. The problem with those islands is they're claimed by a whole bunch of people. There's a whole lot of history to those claims. Same with the, 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 the Senkaku, Diaoyutai between uh, China and Japan, and Taiwan. There's historical claims there. If they go there with their military, it's not, they, they have no plans to invade Australia, you know, they, they, they try, you know, if you look at the way China's tried to broker the whole Korean war, the whole Korean situation, they've got this terrible, terrible, they know that Kim Jong-un and his dad and his grand, they know they're nuts. But they, they also, and they've got nuclear weapons. And China has done something which we hardly recognize if you don't actually follow this stuff. They have been trying to keep you know, pat them on the head and, and have these like six-way dialogues so that people can, you know, mitigate the threat of war breaking out on the Korean Peninsula. China's been really busy with that. They are not, the Communist Party has a lot of problems and I'm not a huge fan of, you know, a lot of what they do, but I don't believe they are an inherently expansive military, I don't believe that they have in expansive military ambitions. And, and I think that's really, with your plea for greater understanding in Australia and with what you've just said there about their military ambitions or their lack of them, I think it's a really good place to end the night. So please look, put your hands together. For, for Thank you. Time. Thank you.